Tremendous, tremendous truth, and how encouraging to your hearts as we've been singing this night has lifted our souls to consider the greatness of the Lord in His mercy towards us. I turn your attention this evening to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. As you do so, just I want to express publicly, uh, I think appropriately, uh, just my gratitude and the collective gratitude of the session for the labors of the committee in this congregation. It is utterly impossible for any church to function the way it ought to uh, without men who are willing to labor, to work, to do the things that others um, either are not capable of doing or maybe not willing to do, whatever the case might be. Um, God has so often blessed His church, and in blessing His church, we might say, has used the labors that seem so insignificant to advance His kingdom in ways that were never intended by the action. What I mean is people act, they, they do, they, they perform their duties that they feel, well, this is, this is my duty to do. And God actually uses that to extend His kingdom. So you have the language of the Lord Jesus Christ that uh, by doing our good works, we will cause others to glorify our Father which is in heaven. When they see your good works, some of them will be so influenced that they will be led to bring glory and praise and thanksgiving to God. Good works. Works that are done to glorify God, works that are done to be an encouragement, works that are done that seem, again, not so significant in the moment, and yet used by God. The same is expressed, I think I've pointed out in the past, with the initial selection of the deacons in Acts chapter 6. I don't believe it to be a coincidence that immediately following the appointment of the deacons that there was the extension of the kingdom. There were many that were added to the church, and particularly the most hard-hearted individuals in the community, the priests. Many priests were converted after the deacons were selected, and after it became evident that there was this concern to help practically in the lives of men and women. That's not insignificant, therefore. All these men were doing, I say all, in, in the sense that how it may be perceived... It's just, it's not that big a deal. But what they were doing was seeing a need, widows that had a need, and they were responding to that need, showing their concern, recognizing that there's, there's this call in the church to remember those who are vulnerable. And they simply responded to that need, and such was the ripples of that in the community. I, I believe, I believe the priests were convicted and what some of the priests saw was, how come these people, I mean, they, they're, do, they're meant to be false. This is meant to be a, a sect. They've said this man of Nazareth is, is, is the Messiah, we reject that, but how come, how come their deeds, we, we can't deny that they are reflecting the mercy of God through such Deeds, and they were convicted and ultimately converted through 
deacons working. So I want to give a word of thanks to all those um, that there's obviously some from the past group that are still deacons and others that are not, but I'm very thankful for each and every one of them. And I'll not, you know, draw attention to any one particularly, but just there is a great appreciation for all that each one does. And, and I say to the congregation, pray for the current uh, deacons as they begin to work together and understand their responsibilities and, and pray that God would use their work to extend his kingdom. Not just make it easier for you to come to church and know that you know, the gate's open or something like that, you know, the doors are open or whatever, but, but that God would use their work to extend his kingdom. That, that is not only possible, that is the Lord's desire. And I would greatly, uh, dearly love to see that going on. May the Lord be pleased to do it, knit our hearts together, and move in the oversight of the church, both elders and deacons, and revive all of our hearts, and help us to do the labor that He has called us to do here in this place. So please pray for us. We're just men. None of us have superpowers. We're just men. But we covet, therefore, your prayers that the Lord will give us help. So as I turn your attention now to the Word of God, Luke chapter 7, we want to finish off this chapter as it is given to us here. And we have gotten as far as verse 35, so we're commencing our reading of verse 36. And I trust the Lord will bless what we look at this evening. It is a longer portion, but it's all one narrative. It doesn't really have anything complex in it either, so my intention is to stay in line with that. And may the Lord help us to be simple in our language. If you're here tonight and... You're silently struggling with great guilt and shame. This is a word for you. Luke 7, verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? 
I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Amen. May the Lord give us the help of his Spirit as we look to his word this evening. Let us pray. Let's still our hearts. Our God, we thank Thee for reminders of Thy mercy and Thy forgiveness. We need it. Far too many of our days are filled with the experience of shame and guilt. And we need to be helped in seeing not just the awfulness of our sin, though we do need to see that. But it would be a tragedy if that's all we could see. We need to see that thy mercy endureth forever, and that there is mercy with the Lord. O God, this night we pray, turn hearts to thyself. Give such light and help in the Word that the page of Scripture before us will will jump off the pages that were and into our hearts with efficacy. That every person will feel what is at the heart of this passage. And that we would hear the very same thing that the woman heard from the Lord Jesus. That our sins are forgiven. Bless us then this night. Give help to preacher and hearer alike. May Christ stand in our midst. And may we all know it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were in the Gospel of Luke, of course, we were considering verses 24 through 35. And at the end of those verses, you will remember, the Lord Jesus gives a striking parable that shows that men who refuse to believe will find any reason to justify their prejudice. You remember, we'll go back just to remind you, perhaps, when from verse 31, the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, But wisdom is justified of all her children. The Lord shows here that He purposefully uses different men. That He had John the Baptist set aside and from the earliest days of His life, which part of that is given for us in Luke's Gospel, He was being shaped, He was being formed, He was being molded to be a particular character. Now, that's not unique to John. Certainly John's experience was unique. But it's not unique in the fact that 
God is working in our lives from the very time that we are in our mother's womb. That He has a purpose, that He has an intent, and He will, in fact, bring us through experiences that will then shape us and form us and mold us and make us to be the kind of people that we are. And part of it will be inevitably genetic. Other parts of it, of course, will, will relate to our environment and how we're brought up and so on and so forth. But we are being shaped. The Lord purposefully uses different men. Sometimes, of course, this is a matter of debate among the Lord's people. We, I say we, I hope I don't fall into it too often, although I'm sure I have been there. But there is, you know, debate about trying to determine what personality or approach is best in ministry. And it's hard not to have favorites. I mean, you've, you've had them. The men whose ministry have impacted you, shaped you, formed your thinking, the people that the Lord used in your life to bring you to Christ, if such as a minister, you will, you will think differently about them very often. And, and you'll have a, a concept, a, a, a kind of type in your mind of, of this is the ideal servant of God. This is the ideal minister. But, but one of the things we learn from the parable that we just read is that the Lord uses different people. And they can be very different in their manner. And so, when the Lord distinguishes men and makes them different, it is not for Christians to debate over the effectiveness of one way or the other, which is what we're prone to do. Oh, he would be much more effective if he was a little softer, or he would be much more effective if he was a little more firm, or whatever. He distinguishes men, in part at least, not for us to debate the effectiveness of, of different characters, but to work or work itself out as a condemnation upon the unbelieving. It's to remove from them the arguments that will criticize one man, but at the same time criticize someone who's entirely different and expose them to be people who are simply trying to find a way to reject the message. It's not really about the people. It's about the message that they refuse to submit to. Now, going back again to where we were in verse 30, we read, The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of Him. This is the Lord's remark in relation to uh, the Pharisees and lawyers' response to John. And they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. And what is surprising then is to find that in verse 36, one of these Pharisees actually invites the Lord Jesus into his home. So we read in verse 36, one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Now having made the remarks that he had about the Pharisees, you might not expect one that the man would invite him to his home or that even the Lord would be willing to go. But this is not what we find. We don't know why he invited the Lord. We have no idea. He may, given the benefit of the doubt, he may have been curious, a little like Nicodemus. There's a curiosity. We're seeing things, I'm, I'm discerning something, and I want to know more. I think if that was the case, he probably would be com coming to the Lord under the cover of darkness rather than publicly. But that may have been the case. Or perhaps his mindset was more with the ideology, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. 
I think as you read through the passage, however, it, it comes, becomes clear that there is a certain skepticism and that Simon, as the name is given to us, didn't really invite the Lord to learn so much about him, but to find some way to dismiss the influence that the Lord Jesus was having upon the masses. As a side note, I don't believe this is the same event that you find in Matthew 26 or in Mark 14 or John 12. You have there again a woman anointing the Lord with an alabaster box of ointment. And I believe that this is a different event uh, for no other reason than uh, perhaps we can argue they seem to be in completely different geographical locations. Those other events happen in Bethany. This is in Galilee. These are miles apart. It's not in the same locality at all. But what I want us to consider tonight as we look at these verses is divine forgiveness, a lesson in contrasts. Divine forgiveness, a lesson in contrasts. The, the, the heart of it, of course, is about forgiveness. That's how it all ties up at the end. It is about how one can be forgiven. Verse 48, thy sins are forgiven. It's all leading up there. So the doctrine of forgiveness, understanding forgiveness, should not be out of our mind in any part of this passage. But I couldn't help but see the contrasts that the way the Lord teaches about forgiveness here or about how one stands before God, whether accepted or not, is in contrasts. And so you have the Pharisee and you have this woman called a sinner. We don't know her name. But you have these two individuals and the Lord has these contrasts that are very clearly delineated as you go through the passage. Let's consider them very simply. First, the contrast in their public identity. The contrast in their public identity. We are told, first of all, that Simon is a Pharisee. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. This man... This man by the name of Simon, later, and we are told in verse 40, Jesus answering and said unto him, Simon, he's a Pharisee. He is therefore one of a very tight and, and closed group of religious individuals. The spiritual elite of the day, at least as they were perceived, certainly as they perceived themselves, they were small in number. There weren't that many of them relative to the populace. It wasn't like everyone could just you know, submit an application and become a Pharisee. It wasn't an easy thing to be a Pharisee. We know later that Saul of Tarsus, known also as Paul, was, was a Pharisee. And Pharisees are mentioned throughout the Gospels. They play a central role in the experience of our Lord Jesus, especially the animosity that came towards him from the Jews in general. If you go to Luke chapter 5, you can see something of how they were thinking. Back to Luke chapter 5, verse 21. They were following the Lord. They couldn't ignore Him. I'm sure if the Lord had no real following, they would just be able to ignore Him, but they weren't able. In Luke chapter 5, verse 21, we're told, The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this? which speaketh blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? And therefore, they, 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 there was a mindset, at least in, at this stage, and of course it increases and gets worse, but one of, the, one of the charges that they brought to the Lord Jesus early on is this man's a blasphemer. This comes up even in the, the final part of the Lord's sufferings and the charges of blasphemy that are brought against him. But this is happening early on. And since this is occurring here in Luke 5, 
the Pharisees begin to reason, saying, who is this that speaketh blasphemies? There's no doubt that Simon was aware of this. As a tightly knitted group, as, as, as those that would have interacted with one another on a regular basis, and there weren't really, as I say, that many of them, Simon, no doubt, would have been aware of the, of the rippling thought through the sect of the Pharisees, through the group of Pharisees, through that segment of religious society that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is a blasphemer. So he has some thoughts of his own. Again, we don't know the motive for inviting the Lord, but it seems to me that certainly there's a level of skepticism that is dominant in his heart. And as part of the Pharisees, they are not feeling very in favor of what is going on. <laughs> At the very least, even if there was a certain amount of honesty in terms of analyzing the language of the Lord Jesus, it would have been frustrating them that he was having such an influence over so many people. The same reason why they were upset with John and rejected John. They, they didn't want to be aligned with John and they, they despised John, but they, they wouldn't touch John because everyone knew he was a prophet. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. They despise the fact that so many are influenced by him. In Luke chapter 11, by the time we get there, we see the, the increase of their animosity toward him. The very last verse of Luke 11 that they're laying wait for him, seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So, so this is, you know, just sandwiching the event that we've, that we've looked at and we're considering tonight in Luke 7. You have before, they're calling him a blasphemer because he's forgiving sins. And then they're trying to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. And, and, and I think that that may, if I was to surmise, is, is really at the heart of Simon's own desire. He's trying to catch the Lord or determine exactly what kind of a man he is. So Simon is a Pharisee. That's how he's identified. This is the kind of person that we have in one part of the narrative given to us tonight. But on the other side, of course, the contrast is the woman. And the woman is a sinner. Look at verse 37. Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, that's the record given concerning her, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and so on. She is a sinner. That is how she is designated. Simon's a Pharisee. This woman is a sinner. And by calling her a sinner in this way, the idea is that she was a notorious sinner. We know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in this language, there is an understanding that she was notorious. That perhaps even she might, we might say she was a professional sinner. And that's how often she has been described. That her lifestyle was one where she made her living by doing that which is sinful. And everyone knew it. So this great sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. I can't tell you how she got in. I don't know how she managed to get in there because I don't think she would have been invited by Simon or been welcome, except at the point she became a tool when she was already there going through what was going on. And he, he just stops instead of driving her out again. He's just observing to see how the Lord will respond to her. So I have no idea how she got in. We know that many people were following the Lord Jesus, a massive crowd, and perhaps there was a swarm of people around the house, and 
I'm not sure to what extent even the meat was being distributed to those that were gathered around. None of that we know. But she gets in, that's the point. She's determined to get in. And I guess the, one of the things that must be asked is, well, 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 why was she so moved when she knew that Jesus was in this Pharisee's house? Why was she so moved to be there? Why? When the information gets to her ears, Jesus is in Simon the Pharisee's house, why does she feel compelled to drop everything and go there? You read through the story, it seems that God has done a work in her heart. Why? How? What had she heard? Again, I don't know, but it's good for us just to think about what she may have been influenced by. Again, back at Luke chapter 5, when we're given the conversion of Levi, who again was, was rejected by the Pharisees, not liked at all, and we're told in verse 30 and following, the scribes and Pharisees murmured against him against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And so, so as they observe them sitting with, with Levi and all of Levi's friends that are gathered for this great celebration, the Pharisees are watching on murmuring, Why would you sit there? Why are you with all these great sinners? Why would you join hands with them and eat with them? And Jesus responds. He hears what they're saying. He hears their murmuring and their criticism. And the disciples have nothing to say, but Jesus has something to say. Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I get the sense in the context there that this was declared loudly and clearly for everyone to hear. And I don't know if the woman was there. I don't know if she was one of the great sinners that were there. I have no idea who Levi invited, who he gathered into her home, but clearly there were the kind of people that were criticized by the Pharisees. And the question then is, why would you sit with such people as this? It's exactly the same thought that was going through Simon's head when he saw the woman washing the feet of our Lord. You don't deal with these people. You don't interact with them. Salvation comes by segregation from the unclean. But if you're really the Lord's people, the segregation, the separation, or even in light of this morning's message, being the garden of the Lord and having walls around us, are such that we never have any interaction with those that are in the world. But the Lord declares, oh, if we could hear it amidst their murmuring and their criticism and their snide remarks as they kind of look condescendingly down their nose at the crowd that are gathering at Levi's house, Jesus confronts their pride. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What a humbling statement for the Pharisees to hear. You think you're righteous. And you think Messiah's coming for the righteous. He's not. He has come for sinners. He has come for sinners. These are my people. Not in the sense that I am like them, that I'm a sinner like them, but I have come to minister to such that the message, the redemptive work I am engaged in is particularly for such. They didn't get it. So I, I, I'm, I'm looking at the passage, I'm thinking, 
How did she come to, you know, why was she so moved? What, what message did she hear prior to this? I don't know. I don't know. But I think it's helpful just to step back and say, something drove this woman to be there. That perhaps she was there at Levi's house. Maybe, maybe she was in the vicinity or maybe another occasion where the Lord was speaking in such terms. And it reached her heart. And she began to mull over this as, as a lost sinner. All sinners are lost. But what I mean is someone who was an outcast, despised, hated, someone who had lost all credibility with the family, with the community, with society. The only people who gave her any time were those who were willing to pay for her services, so to speak. She had, she had no sense of, of connection. She was isolated. She was alone. Her sin had driven her into the dark recesses of the community. And she was unwelcome. No one had any time for her. But this message, this, this message of hope. Oh, listen, sinner, hear it. Hope for sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Maybe she heard that. Or maybe she heard... Luke 7, verse 34, just in where we've been coming from. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. You're making him out to be a sinner. And so you say he's a friend of publicans and sinners. Maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe that was all she heard. He's a friend of sinners. He is a friend of sinners. I want, I want to show that I want that friendship to exist. I want to reflect I want to go to him and show that I want there to be a friendship. I want there to be a connection between him and me, a sinner. That's exactly where you should be. You want to make the Lord Jesus your friend. And the people who make the Lord Jesus their friend are the people who know that they're sinners, that they're lost, that they're on their way to hell, that they're under the judgment of God, and they have no friend in heaven. There's just God and all of His frightening glory and splendor and holiness, and, and the thought is, there's no way I can be accepted before God. But, but there's one there. There's one in heaven. And He's a friend of sinners. Maybe that's why she moved and took her opportunity to show, if you're a friend of sinners, I want you to be my friend. I want you to see how much this means to me. Whatever the case, it seems she had been profoundly impacted by the message preached and the love shown by the Lord Jesus. So every Christian should just stop. And ask yourselves, if the worst people in our community were to know us, would they see that, should they come to a point where they realize that they need to be saved, would they naturally gravitate to us? I'm not saying that all sinners should be naturally drawn to you because if they are hardened in their sin, they don't want to be near you because your life is, exposes their 
sins, that the darkness doesn't come to the light, lest the deed should be reproved. But if they were in a position that, where they were ready, where they wanted to be saved, would you be the person they would call? Or are their thoughts of you similar to the thoughts concerning the Pharisees? They'll just judge me. They'll find fault with me. I couldn't bring myself to go to them because they'll begin to tell me about all the mistakes I've made and tell me what they've already told me in the past. <laughs> the foolish decisions and so on and so forth. Well, I've heard all that I, and I, I acknowledge that that is true. I don't need to hear it again. I need the remedy. There's a great danger in our living that we live in such a way that should people come to a point where they're ready to receive the message, they will not come to us because all they see in us is the critical spirit. And we must, we must fight against the tendency to be pharisaical within our own hearts. What we learn, of course, in this passage is that though Simon is a Pharisee and this woman is a sinner, lived the life of a flagrant sinner, that really, when we understand it in light of all the canon of Scripture, the worst sinner isn't the one designated a sinner, the worst sinner is the one that's deluded as a sinner. It's the one who doesn't see their own sin. And I hope that's not true of anyone here tonight. Secondly, not only the contrast in their public identity, but the contrast in their internal scrutiny, their internal scrutiny. There's always a dialogue going on in our minds. It's always a conversation we're ha having as we, we look at things, as we observe people, as we listen to what they say. We're always having a little discussion course, there are different types of people of, that live in the world. There are those who just say everything that is going on in their minds. And they just blurt things out and they usually get into trouble. There are other people, of course, who, who never say anything that's on their mind. And that's also really frustrating because you never know where they are. Everyone has an internal dialogue. And in the verses, the early verses here of the scene, there's no dialogue going on in the outward, there's no, no one speaking to the issue, and yet there is, there is much that's being communicated. First, the woman had an unspoken love for the Lord. Verse 37, again, and behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now she is not saying a word, but this is communicating a lot, isn't it? You can't read these, these words without thinking about what is being communicated about her towards the Lord Jesus Christ. She is saying volumes, speaking volumes. Her actions are declaring an affection, a love, 
So as she processes the Lord Jesus, as she looks at the scene that she is entering into, all she sees is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the only discussion is, He is all that matters, and I want to show Him that. He is all that matters, and I want Him to know it. She's not looking at the possibility of someone scrutinizing her, someone recognizing her for the sinner that she is. She's not thinking about that. She's having this single-track mind. I need him to know that he's all that matters. That he has stolen my affections. Every young woman right now should see her as a warning, I say as an aside. If she lived the lifestyle that so many commentators believe she lived, she had many men in her life. But perhaps none of them she had ever been able to love. relationship was one of mere utility. No affection. And perhaps for the first time in her life, she looks at a man and there's affection. Love. We'll consider it more later on, but you see she brings an alabaster box of ointment. This is an expensive item. This, she, she, she intends for the alabaster box to reflect her love. That's her intention. She's trying to put a value. She's taking the most precious object maybe she can put her hands to and give it to the Lord. isn't really the, about the alabaster box. It's about what follows. Stood at his feet behind him weeping. Sobbing. The tears are flowing so freely that they can actually be taken and used to wash the Lord's feet. This is not one tear. Have you ever sobbed in such a way where you have soaked the ground or your pillow or your duvet? You have soaked it with incessant tears. This is where she is. I'm quite sure she tried to be discreet. But she couldn't be. So she takes 
her hair, which she would have had to let down, which would not have been the thing to do. So she has her hair, in all probability, tied up. She lets it down to use it as a kind of towel. And then anoints the Lord's feet with the expensive ointment, that even his feet are worthy of this. Her love speaks volumes. So while the woman had an unspoken love for the Lord, Simon had an unspoken skepticism towards the Lord. Because in verse 39 then, when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Simon, the great Pharisee that he was, acquainted with the Old Testament Scriptures as well as perhaps anyone that was in the room that day, apart from the Lord Jesus, has a view of who the prophet, the great prophet, or even, we may even say a prophet, but let's consider what the people are saying. This is the Messiah. So, he looks at it and he has a particular view of what Messiah or even a prophet would be like. He has his own preconceived idea of what they should be like and Jesus doesn't fit that view. Now, we recently have seen someone who had a similar-ish experience. <laughs> Back in verse 19, it was John. There were things that were going on in Jesus' life and John couldn't reconcile what was going on or the, we might even say the absence of what he expected the Messiah to do. So in verse 19, John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? So John had a certain conception of what the Messiah should do and he's not fitting. But John asked an honest question. He inquired, help me understand here. Simon, on the other hand, he has no time for this. He, he believes he has it all figured out. He would have been much better asking Jesus how such behavior fits with the work of the Messiah or the testimony of a prophet, but instead he processed the event and drew his conclusions without discussion. And no doubt, once the Lord left, he would start sharing those conclusions with all the other Pharisees. Did you see? If he was really a prophet, he wouldn't have let that happen. He's not a prophet. He would have shared that. I'm quite certain of it. Simon is like so many. He is like the man who tries to understand Christianity merely by googling his skeptical thoughts. Did Jesus Christ really live? Tell me, Google. Did Jesus Christ die? Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? <laughs> Asking Google, really? <laughs> yeah. Because, 
Google has such coherence in giving answers, doesn't it? You ever research anything? If you research it at all, you will find conflicting ideas on pretty much any subject under the sun. It's not an honest way to inquire. It's the way people, at least normally, it is the way people inquire who already have come to a conclusion and now they want something to support their conclusion because they haven't the brains to come logically to the conclusion they have themselves. They want someone else to using sophistry, get to that conclusion and then they can go and use it. No, Jesus didn't really live or Jesus didn't really die. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It's not honest. It is not honest. The honest man will do what John did. The honest man will go to the source and ask the questions. And for you, that means going to the Word of God. If you really, if you're here tonight genuinely with skepticism in your heart and you have yet to believe, the honest thing for you to do is go to the Bible with the questions. Lord, you know I struggle with this. And you read the Scriptures. You just read the Word of God. And you read it with a desire to learn. Because your questions are only the beginning. There are a whole host of other questions that could be asked. And if you want to take it with a certain perspective, you could come to your own conclusions about them as well to bolster the reasons why you don't believe. But you go to the source and realize that far too often you have a certain predisposition to skepticism and you're not coming honestly to the subject or to the matter. You're not. Go to the Scriptures, friend. Go to the Scriptures. I remember when one of my uncles was converted and he had a long-term relationship with a Roman Catholic girl. And when he was converted, it was a radical change in his life and would have had radical implications in their relationship. And he explained, if I remember correctly, he explained very simply, in the simplest of terms, his salvation, his testimony. But he did not get into debates about the differences between what he believed now and what she was brought up to believe, Catholicism. He didn't wade into that. He didn't start discussing it. He didn't come with all the arguments, trying to deal with the skepticism of her heart. You know what he did? He handed her a copy of the Word of God and pleaded with her, just read this. Read this. And two months later, she was saved. Go to the Scriptures. Don't come to your conclusions in your own mind, like Simon. Thirdly, the contrast in their moral liability. The contrast in their moral liability. Verses 40 and following. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. Something to say. And he saith, Master, say on. I'm not so sure if he really wanted to hear what the Lord Jesus had to say, but maybe he did. Who knows? 
There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. I suppose. Great imagination there, Simon. <laughs> you can just about conjure the possibility that the one who was forgiven most would love most. Very good. Yes, there's not much imagination in the unbelieving. Anyway, this parable that the Lord tells here is, of course, in response to the thoughts that Simon is having. His mind's full of skepticism, unspoken, just like the woman who had her unspoken expression of love for the Lord. He had his unspoken skepticism, but the Lord knows what's going on. And we're told here there's two different debts. There's one of 500 pence, the other of 50. A penny would have been the day's wages for a laborer at that time. So you have 50 days of labor and 500 days of labor. So it's pretty significant difference between them because what you're dealing with here is not the wealthy. You're dealing with those who don't have very much. They're, they're getting a penny a day. They are minimum wage workers, as it were. And so, in, 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 I guess in, in modern terms, we might say one of them had a debt of $5,000, the other had a debt of $50,000. Which again, if you're a millionaire it, you know, or a multimillionaire, the, the significance isn't that much, perhaps, in terms of percentages. But for someone who's getting paid just a, a minimum wage, it's significant. Now, we want to see this because the Lord is telling this parable and He's, he's, he's pinning to to experiences on each of the people that are before him. He's, 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 and this is where it comes in. There, there's contrast here. There's contrast, and the Lord is teaching by way of contrast all the way through this passage, and here is even more clear. First of all, the woman was in greater debt. We know that. The Lord does not deny the sinfulness of this woman. The Spirit of God gives the record that she was a sinner. And that is not designed to, to, it's not intended to communicate the idea that she was a sinner like everyone's a sinner. It was with the intention that she was a great sinner, a noted uh, sinner, someone who was known for an ungodly lifestyle. And the Lord doesn't ever whitewash over such things. He doesn't tell lies to sinners. He tells it how it is. And even when it comes to the very end of the passage, he says, verse 47, her sins, which are many. He's not denying it. Her sins are many. So he's realistic. He's realistic about the circumstances she is in. She has a greater debt. And so she's the one who owes 500 pence. She has this huge debt that she cannot pay. But the point of the parable and the contrast also is to note that Simon also is in debt. And though he doesn't realize it, he is also in debt. It seems to be lost on him, of course, but the fact that he is in debt of 50 is still significant because verse 42 says, when they had nothing to pay. What is the difference between a debt of 50,000 and a debt of 5,000 if you can't pay either? The, 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 the debt, the figure of the debt makes no difference. It makes no difference whatsoever. The, you can't pay it. That's the point. You cannot pay the debt. And this is lost on Simon. It seems to me completely lost on. 
that he is reading, he's, 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 he's listening to what the Lord is saying, and, you know, obviously, I think he could make the connection that she's the greater sinner, therefore she's the one who's in more debt. But the implication of the parable is, Simon, you are also in debt, and you can't pay it either. You think you are in a better state or condition before God. You imagine yourself to be in a place of acceptance before God, but you're not. You are in debt. So lest I forget to make the application, let me make it now. If you're here tonight and your, your idea of salvation before God is one that imagines that it's all about weighing up the good deeds with the bad, and your hope is that you'll just about outweigh the bad with the good, I'm here to bring an awakening to your mind. You have a debt that you cannot pay. The wages of sin is death. And that wage you can't pay back. You are constantly plunging yourself into more debt before God. And no amount of good deeds deletes the bad. Imagine for a moment, lest you should sit there and think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Imagine for a moment the most outstanding, upstanding individual in Greenville who's ever lived in Greenville murders a man in cold blood without any reason whatsoever except for some expression of anger. There's no reason, there's no rationale, there's no defense of the deed. And yet the same man has, has, has given money to the poor, he has built schools, he has supported hospitals, he has done all this philanthropic work. He is an outstanding figure, he's a mayor of the town. And he blows someone's brains out and he stands before the judge and says, well, wait against all your other deeds, we're just going to overlook it. <laughs> That's not how it works. Every one of your sins brings judgment. Jesus Christ pays for every sin. Our sins are laid on Him. And your sins will be paid for. God will not overlook even the smallest of them. They will all be judged either on you or on Christ on the cross. You have a debt you can't pay. They had nothing to pay. There's the judgment day for the person without Christ. Verse 42, they had nothing to pay. Nothing to pay. That's the man naked without the righteousness of Christ. He has nothing to give to God. But the Christian, amidst his faults and failures, amidst his ups and downs and, and his inconsistencies of life, the Christian has laid hold on Christ like this woman. When you lay hold on Christ, there is a frank forgiveness. He frankly forgave them both. This parable was spoken for the benefit, not of the woman, but Simon. The Lord very like Luke chapter 15, actually, where we concentrate so much on the prodigal, and we focus on the glory of the prodigal's return, that sometimes we miss the end of 
the end of the parable, which is that the father, just as he went out for the prodigal, he goes out to the elder brother. And he appeals to the elder brother. Come in. Join us. Enter the party. Experience the celebration. Rejoice with us all. And we can't forget that the, that the audience on that occasion, that the reason for the threefold parable given in Luke chapter 15 was in response again to the Pharisees and scribes saying, This man receiveth sinners and eats with them. And so he tailors his parable and he, he has this depiction of the prodigal. Well, they're the, they're the outcasts. They're the, the great sinners. They're like this woman and they're, they're lost and they're undone and they're out there and yet the father takes them in. But it doesn't end there. He then shifts his mind to the elder brother. He turns his attention to the very people who initiated the parable in the first place. Those who thought themselves to not be in need of forgiveness and the father's appealing, you need to come in as well. Don't stand outside the celebration. Don't keep yourself away from the blessing. Come in. And this parable has a similar application. It is implying, it is teaching to Simon that you can be forgiven as well. Your debt may be small, but you can't pay it either. And I can frankly forgive you just as I will this woman. So maybe someone hears tonight, tonight and you're, you're the religious sinner. You're the person who thinks you're going to earn your way to heaven. You're impressing God with all the things that you do. I really doubt that such a person could exist very long in this church, but should that be the case? Should that be the case? You have nothing to pay. Nothing. You, you can't buy your way to God. You can't impress God. Not for a second. You have a debt. It might not be as big a debt as some people that you look around and you see and you know their background, you know their lifestyle, and you say, well, I haven't lived like they've lived. But you still have a debt you cannot pay. And you need Jesus Christ just as much as they do. You need the frank forgiveness of God. Simon. Simon was in debt. Even in the language, before we move on, he frankly forgave them both. They immediately were on a par, weren't they? One's, one's plunged into great debt, the other in lesser debt, but, but that act of forgiveness brings them on to a level of equality. What an indication of justifying grace. The doctrine of God's free justification of sinners. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand before God on equal terms. So if you ever look across the church and say, I wish I was more like them. And I hear them pray. I can't pray like them. I wish I could pray like them. I wish I could, you know, and you, you look, you, you're sore on yourself and you, you're critical of your own life and you imagine them to be closer to God and walking near to God. Certainly there's an element in which some people are closer to Christ than others. But, 
But be careful that it doesn't impinge on your understanding of the doctrine of justification. This is where Rome goes wrong. It tries to merge sanctification and justification. It tries to blend in doctrines, and it doesn't delineate the clear distinction that when justified, we are all equally justified on the same grounds. We have the same merit, which is not ours. It's Jesus Christ. We stand before the Father claiming the wondrous person of His Son as the answer for our condition, and therefore there is this wonderful unity. He frankly forgave them both. He didn't say to one, I'm going to forgive you all, but you still owe me 10% of what you owe. There would be a disparity there, but they are both fully forgiven. So it doesn't matter how, how grave your sins, how, how far you have fallen. Listen to me. It does not matter if you have been involved in the vilest sins, even as recent as in the last 24 or 48 hours or the last week. It doesn't matter. You can be justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's said to you, you're forgiven. I think it's wonderful, is it not? Am I alone? Surely I'm not alone. He frankly forgave them both. Oh, to the religious, to the deep-dyed sinner, the message is one of tremendous encouragement. Fourthly, the contrast expressed in their hospitality the contrast expressed in their hospitality. I use the term hospitality in terms of how they dealt with the Lord. In verse 36, we see Simon. He shows a certain amount of hospitality. He, he desired Jesus that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Well, there's a certain amount of hospitality shown there. But there's a great distinction. <laughs> there's a great distinction between them. The woman... The woman does everything that Simon should have done. And that is brought out by the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Verse 44, He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet. That is common decorum. You bring a visitor into your home, that part of the world at that time, you bring them in, you wash their feet. You provide water for their feet to be washed, you appoint a servant to actually do it as well, or you may do it yourself. You give me no water. None. You didn't really bring me into your home in a warm, cordial fashion. Your motives were on display before we even began to eat. Because if you really were trying to reach out as a friend, if you brought in an elevator rabbi who you respected, you would have treated them very differently. You gave me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears. And wiped them with the hairs of her head. You should have given me a towel, but you didn't do that. Thou gavest me no kiss. That's what they would have done in those days, just like Judas, when he met with the Lord, greets him with a kiss. We know, obviously, 
the whole scenario about that, but in terms of the historicity and what we learn from it, men would have greeted with a, with a kiss if there was any kind of respect between them at all. You didn't do that. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint. I'm out moving around in society. I'm outside in the heat. You sweat. There's smells. One of the things you do is you would anoint with oil to, to help. But you didn't do that, Simon. There's a great contrast, therefore, in the realm of hospitality, in the receiving of the Lord Jesus Christ. This woman was not in her own home. I'm sure she would have preferred that, but she wasn't. But she comes in there and she does the very thing Simon should have done. There's a huge, there's a huge difference, a huge disparity in how they receive Christ. Now you can see this in the lives of people as they profess a certain form of religion or as they live their lives. You, you can see it. It's not, it's not hard. There are many professing Christians and they will invite Jesus into their home in a certain fashion. They, they, want, they want something about the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but the motives are distorted and the affections are utterly absent. But this woman, she comes in and does everything that Simon ought to have done, or at least one of his servants ought to have done, but she does it in an elevated fashion. It's so marvelous. She doesn't have water, but God provides the water through her tears. She doesn't waste the tears. She said, these tears can be put to good use. No one washed your feet, Lord. I can see it. They, they didn't wash your feet. I'll wash them. I'll take the tears I'm shedding and I'll wash your feet. And no one took a towel to wipe the feet and dry them off, but, but I'll do the best that I can and I will let down my hair and wipe your feet with my hair so that your, your feet are clean even though my hair be dirty. And I dare not stand up and anoint you with this oil in the usual fashion. Even your feet are worthy for this oil. What a difference. And finally, the contrast in their depicted spirituality. The contrast in their depicted spirituality. The Lord, of course in the entire passage, but we'll read the latter part where he says in verse 47, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? It's the same question that has arisen before. And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Simon's spirituality is on display through all the things we've already considered. There is no affection. There's no love. There's no appreciation. There's no heart. There's no, there's no connection. 
This man's heart is as hard as the road. He doesn't even understand this woman. He doesn't even understand. He can't begin to. The most blind man on earth is a man who cannot see his own sin. You can't be more blind than that. There is nothing more obvious than your own sin. It's in your life. It's in your heart. It's in your existence. If anyone should know it, you should. But the man who is devoid of an understanding of his own sin is the blindest person on earth. This, this is Simon. But the woman, no, <laughs> she's the opposite. Her spirituality is simple, but it's real. And she may not think she has much to offer, but she has become a great teaching lesson for everyone. And so she gets this wonderful encouragement. Look at it. Look, listen to me. If you're here tonight and you want to be forgiven, it's not about great acts. It's not about great deeds. It's about great appreciation for Jesus Christ and what he has done. This woman is a notorious sinner. She knows it. She can't delete her past as much as she would want to. She can't change how people perceive her. But she can do one thing. She can turn to the remedy. She can see God's provision for sinners. And she runs there. She's not holding back. She's not thinking about what people will inevitably say. Ah, oh yeah, one of those, you know, like those people who are in prison who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's just to try and abbreviate their time in jail. There's nothing really sincere about it. And certainly there are false professions. But this woman has been, has been brought to see that the answer, God's answer, the most important thing that God has ever brought before her is the person of God's Son. And the great problem of her past and her sin and her reputation, she can have the assurance that it's all wiped away. It's all under the blood. It's all deleted before God. And it will never, none of it, will ever be mentioned before God ever. She is acquitted completely. It's gone. The sins are gone. Look at it. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. She gets it. She gets it that the biggest debt she's ever had is her sin. And she is showing appreciation. Showing her affection. So he directs it to her. Lest she not understand it's being directed bluntly to her. Verse 48. He said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. Oh, that's the sweetest words. Those are the sweetest words. Can there be more sweet words than those? Can there? Have you heard more sweet language than that? Have you? Tell me. Tell me. I want to hear. I want to hear. If you know of anything more precious than those words, I want to hear about it. Because if you've heard something more precious than that, I am inclined to think you don't know what it is to be saved. Because you don't know what it is to see yourself as a sinner. And to understand the consequences for sin that God must pour out upon those that rebel against Him. There's nothing more glorious. Thy sins are forgiven. Thy sins are forgiven. Thy sins are forgiven. Oh, it's wonderful. And yes, the other criticisms. It's all come up before. Who is this that forgiveth sins also? 
And he again turns to her. I faith has saved thee. You're, you believe. You believe. This is saving faith. It's not saying that the work of faith is saved, but she has saving faith. Go in peace. Go in peace. If any, if any of her prostituting of herself should ever be remembered, she has no peace. None. If there's one sin that's going to be brought before God on the day of judgment, there's no peace for any of us. But as our catechism says, Jesus Christ will openly acknowledge and acquit us on the day of judgment. Openly acknowledge. They're mine. And they're acquitted. I've been seeing recently the effect of presidential pardons of late. Have you seen them? And the tears of joy. And these people have already served their time. But, but the fact that their history is being wiped away. That what they've done is being deleted. I mean, they're brought to tears. Grown people brought to tears. How much more? How much more ought we to be brought to tears? That God's dear Son has taken all our sins, bore them Himself on the cross, and deleted the entire account. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is great news. <laughs> it's great news, friend. And Christian, when you get tormented by your folly, which inevitably you will, you go back to Luke chapter 7, you, you, <laughs> you go back to the first love. That's what it is, isn't it? That's, that's what she's expressing. The first love, isn't it? She's overwhelmed. She can't take it in. We, we, some of us have been saved for decades. And we, we, we sadly get a little bit hardened by the amazement of it all. We, don't, we aren't amazed anymore. Not as much as we should be. And then we fall into sin. And God have mercy on us if that hardens our hearts. So when we fall into sin, go, go back and read Luke 7 and see this woman and say, Lord, there, that's, that's it. That's how you begin again. Help me to stay on my knees until I am sobbing sore that I am forgiven. It would do us good, let me say. Let me say to you, beloved, it would do us all good if we, by the Spirit's help, get to that place afresh. And we come on Wednesday nights and we just sob. We come on Wednesday night. What do you do on Wednesday night? I go to church to sob. <laughs> I go there to sob in gratitude. Same on Sunday. What do you do at church? I sob. You sob? I, yeah, I sob. I go there and I am reminded of what Jesus Christ has done and I sob. We need more. More of that. Let's pray.
Have you ever sobbed over your sin? Have you ever sobbed your way to the cross? Have you ever sobbed until you felt a sense of relief that God had pardoned you? That Jesus had put away your sin? May God help you. May God have mercy on you. Lord, I pray for my own heart. I read Luke 7 and I have to say that that scene used to be far more frequent in my own life than it is today. The tears used to flow much more freely. The gratitude was expressed and Amazement and sobs of amazement regularly. But even this heart of mine, Lord, can become accustomed. God forgive me. God Deliver us from a formal professionalism. Lord, would you bless this church with many tears? Tears of gratitude, tears of praise, tears of repentance. Work in our hearts. And have mercy on those who refuse to relent and refuse to repent. Be with us in this coming week. Go before us. Give much grace for every trial and difficulty. And use us as witnesses in this perishing world. Remember those who go directly home and those who go downstairs. Sweeten the fellowship there with thy presence. Bless the food provided to them. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.